Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel 23. So we continue to follow David, uh, the path that God's laid out for him. And as we watch how God's providence continues to uh, lead and direct him and to provide for his needs and to preserve him for God's glory and for his ultimate place of kingship over Israel. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 23. We'll read the whole chapter together, and then we're going to try to see what the Lord would say to us from it. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, help us now to turn to your word and to understand the things that we find there. Lord, Lord feed us. God, fill us. Use your word to, to grow us, to save us, to sanctify us. Or give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that are receptive to you and to your word. God, help us to apply the truths that we find here to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Samuel 23. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surround me, surrender me into his hand? When Saul came down as your servant, will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender, surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? The Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went, they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear. The hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. 
And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock, and he lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. All right. Some difficult names there uh, in the story to pronounce and to try to keep up with, but I think this story is really striking to us and has some really important applications for us as well, even in our day today. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, even if not every week, what we've seen particularly in the last two chapters in verses 21 and 22 is something of the grandeur and the miraculous nature of God's great providence over his people. So that David is a man on the run. David is the anointed king of Israel. God has, has made this clear and he is going to overtake Saul's position as the king of Israel. Saul is now a rejected and a dejected king. He is in many senses alone. He only has his closest of uh, compatriots and, and his uh, friends and, 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 and sort of uh, cabinet, if you will, around him. Uh, we have seen this on numerous occasions. He, he does not have uh, Samuel the prophet any longer as a, as a symbol of God's leaving him and forsaking him. And it has been made known to him that the kingdom will not be his and his family's forever. But in his anger and in his jealousy, in his rage, he has now made public his deep desire to kill David and to take, to, to take his life. And so he's pursuing him out in the wilderness. And David, as we said, is a man on the run. But in 21 and 22, there have been some really peculiar instances where we have seen and come to understand that God is at work in his providence to care for his own. So, so we've been asking the question in the last couple of weeks, does God care? And you can fill in the other half of that question, does God care about X or blank? And we've seen that, yes, more profoundly and deeply and intimately um, and, 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 and 
and, and more detailed, in a more detailed way than we can ever imagine, God cares for his children. We saw that in chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, if we argue that, yes, God does care, we saw something of what that miraculous provision and providence over his people looks like. As God was continually walking with David and delivering David and um, miraculously uh, bringing about his preservation. One of the issues, though, is is whether or not, you know, we asked this question last time, whether or not David would have been able to see all of this and to understand. And I think certainly the answer would have been no. You know, we're, we're given a different perspective on all of these circumstances than David had. There's no way he could have seen all of these providences of God and how they were working and how God was providing and understood them in their entirety. And so David was a man of some great measure of faith in these chapters, walking with and trusting the Lord his God to deliver him. And when you turn to the Psalms that we have looked at, and like Psalm 54 that we saw this morning, Psalm 56, Psalm 34, that are Psalms written in and about these, uh, these occurrences in David's life, what we find is that David believed with all of his heart that he was trusting in God's deliverance and protection. And even when he didn't understand what all of that looked like and how all of the pieces of that puzzle went together, he knew that God was with him and that God was protecting him. But in chapter 23, the question is going to become, and we're going to seek to answer a different aspect of, of, of yes, God cares, and we've seen something of what that looks like, But in day-to-day life, as God leads us and directs us according to his miraculous providence, the question becomes, how do I know where to go? How do I know what to do? How did David know where to go and what to do? Do you see, yes, God cares according to his great providence. His hand is at work, like with David, even when we cannot see, even when the, the completeness of his providential plan for our lives is not open for us to behold. Even we cannot see it, God is working and moving, protecting and preserving. But as we seek to walk faithfully before God, how do we know what steps to take? How did David know? And friends, the answer is becomes clear, and particularly in the first 14 verses of chapter 23, is that God's word, God's word was the source of direction and encouragement to David. And so it will be true for us. I mean, when, when, you, when you take a look, even just a superficial glance at the first 14 verses of this chapter, you are immediately gripped with the reality that there is David and Saul on different missions, if you will, with very different agendas with a lot of questions about where to go and how to accomplish their mission, whatever their mission or agenda is. And David is inquiring of the Lord, and the Lord is answering him with his words and directing him. Saul is not getting any help from God. His word is not coming to him. right? And so there is this comparison that is being made. And so that's where I want us to begin this morning, to consider first that God's word... God's word is directing. 
to say it a bit differently and maybe stronger, God's word is the direction for every aspect of our life. So much so that like with David, according to his great and miraculous providence, we know what steps to take. We know where to go. We know how to live. We know about God. We know about ourselves. We know about Jesus, our Savior. All, listen, because of God's word and through God's word and without God's word, like Saul, we would be lost. That's the, that is the truth that, is the, that the scripture is helping us to be gripped by this morning, that God's word is directing us. It is our directive for life. I mean, consider how God's word comes to David. Verse 2, look, and the Lord said to David. This is after the, David inquired of the Lord. I'd asked him, should we go to the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go. Down in verse 4, then David inquired of the Lord again because his men were not convinced. They were still terrified. You know, look how scared we are here in Judah. How much more scared and more ridiculous would it be for us to go and pursue the Philistines somewhere else? David inquired of the Lord again, verse 4. What do you see? And the Lord answered him. Go down to verse 10. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And David asked again, verse 12, inquired of the Lord. Look down further in that verse. And the Lord said, and the Lord spoke. Then verse 13, then David and his men, about 600 of them arose and went and departed according to the word of the Lord. They went and pursued the Philistines according to God's direction. And then when Saul and his men heard where they were and rose up against David in pursuit of David and his men, they got up and fled wherever they could out of the city and to safety because of, guess what? God's word. God was directing David's life according to his great providence, this mysterious and miraculous providence. God was directing David's path by and through his word. But notice something about how the word of God came to David. It's very interesting. We see it in verse 6. In verses 1 through about 13 or 14, they revolve around, if you will, the hub that is verse 6 and the truth that we're told there. Look at verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. There was not going to be any wondering about the authenticity of the word that David received from the Lord. God had granted David access to himself via his prophet. And guess what? If you remember back last time, what what did we see? That God miraculously delivered one prophet from Nob. One. Where all 85 of them were slaughtered by the hand of Saul and Doeg the Edomite, Saul and his minions. And God miraculously spares one, and that one comes out to David in the wilderness. And now God's plan for that one prophet, God's prophet for God's 
man, it, it becomes clear, doesn't it? There was not going to be any wondering about the authenticity of the word that God sought to deliver. That access to himself and the deliverance of his word would come through his appointed priest. His word was going to come with surety and with clarity. There was going to be definiteness in its delivery. Why? Because it was not left up to interpretation or what David thought he heard or what other people thought God said or what the men felt in their own hearts. The emotions and the fickle hearts of men were not going to be able to cloud it because God gave it objectively through his appointed priest. Do you see... This Abiathar, miraculously in God's providence, is delivered out of the hand of Saul at Nob. He flees to King David, and with him he brings an ephod, that is the priestly ephod, that is used in the service of the priest and in performing their priestly roles to to come before God on behalf of God's people. And then we see him in verses 7 and 8 being put into service for King David. Friends, I, I, don't, I don't know if you see, if you sense the magnitude of those verses and the reality that Abiathar was there that day. But friends, God was directing David through his word, but it was a clear and a sure and a divine, absolute word. It was not a subjective word. He gave it through an appointed means. You see that in verses 6 and 9? Now, I will tell you that back up in verses 1 through 5, when David inquires of the Lord, we're not 100% sure exactly whether this inquiry was made through the priest Abiathar. Uh, It seems to say in verse 6 there that he came out to him at Calah, which is after they had inquired of God the first time. But some people think that all of the inquiries were made through Abiathar's priestly service and role. Listen, we're not 100% sure it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. What we know is that God was directing David and David was seeking his word. And so God was faithful to deliver it in a way that all of God's people, A, would have understood clearly and that none of them would have been able to deny. That God's appointed priest made access to God and his directive words through his appointed man for his chosen people. Do you see that pattern there? And it's so important that we see that because it stands in direct comparison, as I said a moment ago, to the experience of King Saul in these verses. Look at verse 14. Sums it up, doesn't it? David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, the wilderness of Ziph. Despite Saul's... Saul looked at God's leading David into this fortified city where there was gates and bars, as he says. And he said, oh, surely God has delivered him into our hand. Surely God is now for us, and God is now working to help us accomplish our plan and our mission. Look down at verse 14. David remained, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Saul is like a, Saul is like a fish on the beach, floundering about with all of his might with absolutely no direction and with absolutely no ability to get where he needs to be or where he wants to be. Now, I said last week that Saul's wickedness has progressively deepened and the depravity of his heart in these verses and in this text has been made clear. But 
but more than anything, his separation from God. His separation from God has now come to the fore. And and what a comparison this is, that God, through his word and through his priest that delivers his word and makes access for David before God's throne possible, God is directing David and speaking to David and answering David and hearing David and helping David to accomplish all that God has promised he would, preserving and protecting him. And Saul is fighting with all of his might and accomplishing nothing of what he sets out to accomplish. What's the difference? God's word did not come to Saul. And God would not give David into his hand. Well, what do we say to this section? What do we say to this reality? Well, on the one hand, if you remember when Samuel rejected Saul and we saw Saul in isolation and lonely and scared and paralyzed by that fear and that loneliness, one of the points that we made uh, then was to see That it is one thing to be lonely in human terms, to lack human companions. But it is a darkness that is far deeper. It is a loneliness that is far greater to be without God and his word. And and that's what we see here. And so, so what can we say about this section and what it teaches us about the relationship of God's word and its direction to our lives? I mean, maybe we wonder how it applies to us. You say, well, I'm not King David. You're not. Neither am I. We do not serve the place in redemptive history and God's plans for our lives that King David would serve as the king over God's people. God has not opened up his providence for us in the same way that he has King David and revealed to us all that he intends to accomplish with us or some of what he intends to accomplish with us. Right? We're not hearing audibly from God the way that David did in the Old Testament. The priest is not hearing audibly from God and disseminating that word to us. You say, well, I mean, this is, I understand what you're saying and I see the comparison that's being made, but how does that apply to me as a New Testament believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that apply to me today in 2015? I think in three ways. Number one, we must understand then that while, and we've said this before, haven't we? That while the details of David's experience are not necessarily to be connected to our own, the principles by which God is operating certainly and most definitely do. So not in the details, but in the principles. And, And friends, the first principle is this, that God's word is the source of direction for our lives. That just as David received direction, divine direction through God's word, though it's in a different since the word is brought or given, so too we must understand that all of the divine direction that we are given in life is through the word of God. So that we must live by it like David. We must listen to it like David. Be obedient to it. Follow it. And when we do, we will strive. And we must understand that when we are without it like Saul, when we are separated from it like Saul, That we will be like a fish on the beach, trying to get to the water, not knowing where to turn, not knowing what step to take, and maybe making all of the 
strides and efforts in the world that we can to ends that God has not ordained and does not intend to help us accomplish. When we are separated from it like Saul was, we must understand that we too will be lost. Friends, you understand that the word of God, and, and now for us I'm speaking about this, this word, not, not, some, not some word that comes to you at night in your dreams. The, the definitive self-revelation of God, the objective truth and revealed will of God for his people, it is one of the most gracious gifts that God has ever given to us. The irony is that it is perhaps the most taken for granted. The most taken for granted. Secondly, I think a principle from this section that definitely applies to our lives, not only that his word is the source of direction for our lives, but secondly, that God provides his word with surety and clarity. Friends, we do not have to wonder what it is that God wants from us. We do not have to speculate about who God is or what he is like. We do not have to imagine a system by which God would love and save us. Why? Because he has already told us. All that we know about who God is, all that we know about how to become how to be in a relationship with him through Christ Jesus, our Lord, all that we know about family and marriage, all of those directives are found in his word. And they are given with surety and clarity because they are objective. They are not subject to the imaginations and interpretations of men. As Martin Luther famously once said, let the man that would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. I saw this week a meme not much into memes. But it said, let the man that would hear God speak audibly read Holy Scripture out loud. But friends, the point is, people ask me as a pastor all of the time what it is that God wants them to be doing. Where, what, what God's will is for their life. And I, I mean, listen, friends, I can't tell you what every minute detail of every day is supposed to look like. But what I know is that you do not have to wonder what God expects of you, what God is calling you to do. You do not have to wonder about what God is like. You do not have to wonder about how you can come into a relationship with him. You do not have to wonder about whether or not your sins have been pardoned. You do not have to wonder about any of these things. You do not have to imagine a system or create a way by which you can meet him and be loved by him and be saved by him. He has told us all of those things in his word. And friends, we don't even bother to read it. Most pastors don't even bother to preach it. Churches all across the Mississippi Gulf Coast today will gather together for worship to come before the throne of God to hear from him and will not crack a Bible. That may sound extreme to you. Friends, it was less than a decade ago in Jackson that I went to a church where the pastor did not even carry his Bible into the pulpit that day. And if they do, maybe they read a word or a verse. And I'm not, I mean, listen, John MacArthur preaches outstanding sermons on one verse. So I'm not condemning that. But my point is, is my goodness. If we believe like David did that the divine directives for our life come through the, the objective word of God, why, oh, why do we spend so little time 
trying to know and understand it. It is perhaps the most gracious gift that God has given us apart from Jesus Christ. And it is, I think, definitely the most taken for granted. Thirdly, by way of principle, not only does his word come with surety and clarity, objectivity where we do not have to wonder. God, think about the pattern that we see here with Abiathar. God provides access to himself through our great high priest. We learn from David and Abiathar that, yes, God's word comes to us, but we are made able in God's providence to come to him. He sends us one that is greater than Abiathar, the high priest. His name was Jesus. And through him, we have a more perfect access than David did to the throne of grace. And we have a more perfect knowledge of God's desires and word than David could have ever known. That's the, that's the testimony of Hebrews, isn't it? Friends, God has reconciled us to himself and brought us into his court through Jesus Christ. And so this truth remains. If you do not know his word, friends, it may be because you do not know him. And the only way to him, the only way to be granted this access before God's throne of grace is through the the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. By trusting in his perfect righteousness and obedience to the law and the blood that he shed to atone for our failure in that respect. If we seek to come before God in any, in any other way and by any other means, we will be turned away. But friends, God's given us access in Christ and that access delivers to us his word that is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces even to marrow that we might know him and his desires for us. Briefly, let's look at the last two. Um, his word is directive, but his word is also encouraging. Uh, just glance with me, if you will, verses 15 and following there, where we see the return of Jonathan. This beacon of light in dark verses, time and again, a uh, a picture of righteousness and integrity. This son of the evil King Saul who has made a covenant relationship with David. Friends, he comes at the perfect time, doesn't he? David is on the run. David is in perhaps what is one of the darkest times of his life that he ever experienced. And his good friend Jonathan is sent in God's providence to come and encourage him. Sent by God to come and encourage him. But... And just to get to the point, we are often tempted, I think, to exalt the value of the messenger above the message. Let me, let me try to help you understand what I'm saying with relation to Jonathan here. Particularly in Western Christianity, there's an emotional sentiment um, where support and friendship are valued more highly than the, object, the objective truth of God's word and the promises that are there found. Let me give you an example. There is often a distinction that has been made, and I have heard it because it has been told to me, between pastors and preachers. First of all, that is a false dichotomy. It's nowhere in the Bible. If your pastor is not fundamentally and preeminently a faithful and good preacher... He is not a pastor. Okay, so let's just get that off the table. But the distinction is that pastors are those ministers who are really good 
at supporting people and friendship and coming alongside. And most good preachers tend to just be good at declaring God's word. The question is, in, in, in circles where that distinction is made, which one do they see to be more valuable, though it is a false distinction? I know of a church in Mississippi where the, the leadership of their denomination sent a delegation to educate them and their search committee as they were looking for a new pastor to educate them on what it was that they needed. And he said this, and I quote, You guys don't need a preacher. Because most of what the preacher says on Sunday morning anyway, we're not going to remember. What you guys need is a pastor. Because what you're going to know and remember is when he holds your hand at 2 o'clock in the morning and sits beside you in the hospital. Friends, let me ask you, when Jonathan came here, let's look at what he did. Saul's son rose and he went to David at Horesh and he strengthened his hand in God, yes. But how did he do that? Literally, that he took his hand and joined it with God's. Because he said to him, verse 17, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father knows this. Why was this known? Because it was the promise of God's word. The most encouraging thing about David's presence, I mean about Jonathan's presence with David that day was his careful articulation of the promises of God according to his word. Do you see? Ralph Davis said it like this, our personal presence does not have the abiding encouragement that God's word does. We best encourage not by being cuddly with people, but by reminding them of the promises of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. And then he he clarifies, I'm not depreciating the helpfulness of the personal touch or care. But in an age that wallows in, quote, caring and sensitivity, on every hand, believers need to know that solid encouragement comes not from emotional closeness, but from God's speech. Friends, I don't mean to tell you that what you need is to be mean. There is some very real value in being close and being a friend and being there. But but what God's people need most is not your friendship. They need a friendship that is a means by which the promises of God, according to his word, are declared to them. Because God's word can encourage them and his promises can support them and preserve them in a way that your companionship and friendship never will. So so don't misunderstand me. But what was so significant about the encouragement that Jonathan provided to David on this day was not merely his friendship and presence. It was the declaration Jonathan made that reminded David about God's promises to protect and preserve him. So not only is it a directing word, not only is it an encouraging word, but it is indeed a surprising word. When you come to the end of this passage... Uh, Saul, who has been looking for a word and looking for direction for the entire passage here and for the entire story, he finally gets it. He he finally gets it. Uh, Alas, he finally hears from God, but it is not in the way that he would have expected and it is not in the way that he anticipated. So David 
and his men are in the wilderness of Maon. You see there at the end of verse 24, south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men, want, want, they, they, they come out against him and begin to pursue his life again. They have been ratted out. Saul now knows where they are. He heard, he heard where they were dwelling. And then look at verse 26. The, it, it, the, the, the pursuit is now coming to a climax. It says, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Man, how close Saul now is. The, you, know, you can see the, the tension here. They're separated by one mountain. And David was hurrying. The idea, the language here is that he was doing everything that he could to get away from Saul. Expending all of his effort to preserve his men and to run for his life. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. I mean, it almost seems as if the capture is imminent. Perhaps death is imminent. Saul and his men are closing in, but here it comes. But a messenger comes to Saul and says... So God sends a messenger now, finally, to Saul. Sends a messenger with a message, so Saul, and he tells him, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made raid against the land. And what happens, verse 28? So Saul hears the word from the messenger, and he turns and departs from David, and he goes to rise up against the Philistines to protect the land. Do you see how surprising this is? Do you see the irony? King Saul finally hears, and God providentially directs him by this word, not to King David, but away from his servant and anointed king. One of David's greatest foes, the Philistines, whom he has battled time and again and have even taken him in captivity on one occasion, one of his greatest sources of oppression have become, according to God's word and direction to Saul, for the moment, his Savior. Isn't that interesting? That God is now using the Philistines to distract, if you will, Saul, and to preoccupy Saul so as to deliver his man, David. So that his, one of his greatest opponents become his Savior. And then a third matter, no matter how hard Saul tries, it, it, it almost gets to be comical. But, but it's, it is nothing short of miraculous. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how close he gets, the reality that is becoming clear is that according to God's providence and his care for David and his directives that come via his clear and sure word, Saul will never capture David. Saul will never capture David. Why? Because God's word must stand. And because the promises he has made to his people, his chosen Israel, and his chosen King David, they must come to pass. You see. So, so let me just bring it all together. And let me plainly ask you this morning. What is God's word to you? Or, or maybe more to the point, what place does God's word occupy in your life? Is it a book of suggestions? Maybe a moral code? Maybe a nice story with some emotional sentiment? Perhaps to you, God's word is completely irrelevant, outdated, erroneous, and flawed. Maybe it's a beautiful book that nicely appoints a shelf or table in your home or office. 
Are friends like for King David? Is the word of God to you life? Is the divine word of God, his miraculous self-revelation, that which is faithful and true and the source of divine direction that leads us to Jesus who is able to save our souls, is it life? Friends, I'm going to close simply by encouraging you with the words of James and James 1, 21. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Friends, let's pray. God, thank you for the word that you've given. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its objectivity and its surety. Thank you for the promises that we find there and the encouragement that they are to our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts this morning when when we so often look more like Saul than we do David. Separated from your word and lost. Lord, help us to see that your word is life and that by it you are directing our path according to your miraculous and mysterious providence. God, you have given us to know about yourself, to know about Christ our Savior, to know about ourselves and our sin, what you expect, what you require. God, I pray that you would help us to see your word as the gracious gift that it is and that to us it would be life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.